As Luke tells the story, later on the same day, several women discovered Jesus' tomb was empty. Two of his one-time followers were traveling by foot to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They're discussing the bewildering events of the prior week, and I imagine they are overwhelmed with complicated and deeply felt emotions, confused and upset. In the first place, they may have been racked by grief at Jesus' shocking demise, and in the second place, consumed with guilt. After all, as all of the Gospels tell the tale, none of his closest friends stood by him at the end. He was abandoned by all of them, including the supposed rock upon whom the church would be built, namely Peter, the lead disciple. Then several women reported that his tomb was empty. Hearing their report, Peter ran to check for himself and found the linens folded neatly with no sign of the man who had met a brutal death three days earlier. What were they to make of all of this? Putting myself in the disciples' shoes, I could imagine wanting to get out of town and far away from my own complicit behavior, a sort of geographic cure. You know about the geographic cure, right? Changing my scene rather than myself. Believing that if I can only change my geography, I can get a fresh start. Forgetting, of course, that wherever I go, there I am, all of me. The good, the bad, and the ugly, just like always. Let's get out of town, Cleopas. Our own lives might be at stake. Let's get this behind us and take a fresh start. But then they couldn't empty their minds of the week's events. How could it be? What did it mean that the tomb was empty? A stranger approaches and joins their conversation and in the process reveals how these events tied together into an astonishing whole. Captivated by his wisdom, they invite him to dinner, and there, as he blesses and breaks the bread, the stranger is made known to them. Back to Jerusalem they go, where they are joined to others in wonderment at what is transpiring among them. Whatever did it mean? What follows in the next weeks and months is one of the most mystifying human transformations in recorded history. The ragtag band of fisher folk and their hangers-on, dispirited, despondent, guilt-ridden, and cowardly, are reconfigured as a dynamic, hope-filled band of friends in possession of a remarkably powerful story about love and abundant life. A real story, not a fantasy some kind of a newfangled non-fiction mystery that sat just beyond the range of complete believability. Still, when allowed to seep into one's consciousness and even deeper into the very center of one's being, the resurrection mystery conferred life-transforming power. That included the disciples who had fled for their lives when Jesus hung from the crossbeam. I'm thinking some part of each of them died along with Jesus on that dreadful Friday. Afterwards, they were the original walking dead. As you heard in our first reading, about 50 days later, Peter, the same one who had famously denied Jesus the night of his arrest, was now boldly able to say to the people of Jerusalem that God had made Jesus Lord and Messiah. The very same one whom we all crucified, he said. The text continues that Peter's starkly frank assessment cut the people to the heart.
In other words, he hit the bullseye. We all participated in his death, and yet he lives. Astoundingly, through Jesus' death and resurrection, torrential spiritual energy was released that ultimately upended every other competing power in the world. Peter's transformation would not have been possible if this energy hadn't turned him inside out. Whatever else might be said about this, one thing is certain. Peter was very much like a man who was dead, but was now more alive than he had ever been before. He seemed to personify the very thing he was proclaiming about Jesus. In some mysterious way, Peter reflected resurrection within his own person. And not Peter alone, but all the rest of them as well. Frederick Beekner points out that we experience the God of resurrection in three ways. As something beyond, something among, and something within. Beyond, among, within. Resurrection is out there as something revealed by Jesus. Beyond us, something that comes to us. But resurrection is also among us as we gather, even, I would say, virtually. And resurrection is deep within each one of us as well. The potential for resurrection resides there. So when we speak of resurrection, we might be referencing any of these three ways. All three ways were in play as Jesus engaged the men on their way to Emmaus and shared a meal with them. He came to them, stayed among them, and remained alive within them. Consider that the beauty of celebrating community is that all three facets are in play. Jesus comes to us as host, and all of us join from wildly diverse backgrounds and geographies and life experiences to acknowledge we are nevertheless related by a sacred genetics, and each of us in turn has a personal internal engagement with our host. It's quite something, really, when you think about it. That's why Holy Communion is so central to our communal life and why I have felt so strongly that during our isolation, we still have occasion to share it, which we've now done three times. By the way, you may be aware that theologians are in disagreement about the legitimacy of virtual communion. But while they dicker back and forth, I want to err on the side of necessity. I need it. We need it. And it occurs to me that in a sense, even when we're physically present to one another, Jesus is mostly virtual, as are the whole company of witnesses we say have joined us around the table. Don't get me wrong here. Nothing will replace our physically gathering together. We do have an incarnational faith after all. God made flesh tangible, tactile. But in the meantime, let's acknowledge that I'm in the flesh here, and you are in flesh there, and when two or more are together, Jesus can be among them too, just as the two friends discovered on their way to Emmaus. And this leads me to something else that I've been thinking about while sequestered in my isolation pod. A memory came to mind of a time a certain successful middle-aged man came to speak with me. He'd been in a confused, dark place, the most difficult place of his life to this point. 
Afraid and uncertain, any true options lay before him. He stumbled into church one Easter Sunday. As he spoke, I realized he hadn't suspected the truth about most everyone else who filled the pews. Sure, they all looked mostly okay, but each had their own story to tell of waffling between confusion and clarity through varying life dilemmas and personal corruptions. I was tempted to interrupt his tale to tell him he was very much among friends. But I didn't say that just then. Still, that's true, isn't it? You have first-hand experience with surprising life transitions that cause old life forms to fall away like scarred husks, exposing the tender growth underneath, ready or not. I bet if we were to collect our stories, we'd gather a pretty complete compendium of the sorts of possible bewilderments and grief that can overwhelm a person as they move through their life arc. And then, who among us was prepared for what the virus has wrought? My new friend said he was stunned by the comfort he experienced by his lurching into spiritual territory. He'd mostly discounted religious forms over the course of his life. He wandered into church not expecting anything much at all. He didn't realize that his current malaise had softened, opened his heart, preparing him for taking in something new, something surprising, something he couldn't or wouldn't have expected while on his way to his own version of Emmaus. Given that he had showed up in the season of Easter, I could have said something like, well, you know, that's how it is with resurrection. It's stunning and bewildering, showing up right where we are, right in our present moment, whatever or wherever that is, as in right here, right now, for you and me. Resurrection shatters our expectations into a thousand fragments and then reassembles them into something we might call real life. Just think, if Jesus is raised, we have to rethink everything. Everything is in play. No current problem, obstacle, or confusion has the final word, even death, which is the biggest problem of all lurking behind every other problem we experience. Even death has to be rethought. What I'm thinking is that this damn virus has pushed all of our buttons, exposing all of our vulnerabilities, stirring confusion and fear, yes, but also, also opening us in a brand new way to life stripped down to the nubs, to essential matters of meaning making, who we are in essence. We just might be more available to God than we had been before. That's possible, isn't it? That's how it went down for the guys on their way to Emmaus. They hadn't realized their confusion and maybe fear, their vulnerability made real by external events, had opened them up to something truly important foundational that revealed how the universe was actually knit together. And resurrection 
was at the very heart of it. 